So thank you, listeners. I just want to share a review that we got from C. Graham. If you stumble across this podcast, fight through episode one. It has good info and introduces you to the host, but it's sort of all over the place. Yes, Graham, it was all over the place. True. They begin their stride in episode two. Every episode, even episode one, in parentheses, has moments of legit sex education and thought-provoking ideas for people from conservative religious background to consider. So thank you very much, C. Graham. We appreciate that. We appreciate your reviews because your reviews help us rise in the algorithms you're still doing it. We appreciate your reviews because they help other people discover the show. Okay, we appreciate your reviews because it helps other people to discover our show. Thank you. Well, I kind of like the conversation we were having before. <laughs> I don't remember. Well, as Steve's over here slurping his what? coffee. Oh, sorry. Yeah. He's having ramen in the, on the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Noodles. It's good. From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts. An exploration of sexuality and spirituality for anyone who's curious or convinced there must be more. With your hosts, Becky Patton, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Luke Bronner, and me, Steve Weens. In light of the conversation that we were having before, I went and pulled the book that I've been reading here recently. It was a wonderful gift. It's called Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, and by and John that, Philip Mill. Is that James Dobson? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I just got to get a few of them out. And then Go ahead. Get them out. Get them out. Get them out. Get them out. Get your reps Shifter. in. Yes. Um, but one of the, but in light of what we talked about last time, and I just think it's so interesting, the thing that we've been given, the tradition we've been given in so many different ways, how it has robbed us of being able to see a wider expanse of wisdom that is in this world. And so this is the quote, at the doorway between faiths, we can stand and bow, awakening to what the soul deeply knows. That wisdom is to be found and reverenced way beyond the boundaries of any one tradition. We need these many wisdom traditions. They are given not to compete with each other, but to complete each other. Hmm. And I think that one of the things that given what so many of us grew up with, we didn't have a choice what we grew up with, right? We didn't have a choice, but we do have a choice what we do with what we grew up with. We were talking over lunch about, you know, what's your guilty pleasure go-to fast food restaurant, fast food restaurant you know? And I don't remember yours, something, Taco. Taco Casa. Yeah, yeah Taco Casa. Yeah. But I remember the fact of the one that I didn't know I was most curious about hmm. because I was starting to ask you questions and I wanted to know what that was and I didn't because I didn't have any concept of it. But like when somebody mentioned McDonald's, I was like, I know what McDonald's is, so I'm going to not get curious mm, about yeah. that. And it made me wonder how that relates into like our sexuality and things like that. There's this element, the things that we don't know about, we actually are really curious about. Mm-hmm. And the things that we think we know, we tend to just kind of shut them down and go, oh, I already know that, so I'm not going to explore more. And I think that's some of what I want to say, especially Christianity has done to sexuality. It has tried to answer all the question and make it so that they we have all the answers and let's just shut the conversation down. Let's not even ask questions and get curious about what my sexuality could be. Before we started this morning, we hopped on Instagram stories and invited folks to send in questions or thoughts. And we had one really thoughtful person write in and was asking about the particularities of within her partnership with her husband of 20 years. They both sort of came from a more conservative evangelical background she has since deconstructed and he has not. So he's still pretty squarely evangelical and she has some nostalgia. It sounds like around some elements of faith, but for the most part, she would not consider herself a part of that at all. And was just asking like, what, you know, is interfaith marriage possible? Like, how do we do this? And that makes me think that like, there's actually, because on the one hand, the experience that they're both having is that neither of them feel especially safe now to be vulnerable about what they believe. But it also... Like based on what you just said, it's like the curiosity is the bond there. You, you, there's so much space now yeah. to be really, there's an intimacy that can come. Curiosity plays a role in that intimacy because you can really seek to know this part of your partner and just 
you know, absolutely accepting that that's where they are, but also just trying to be genuinely curious. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think one of the things that happens is, but you have to grieve the thing that you've let go of because you both entered into that relationship in kind of the same pool with the same ideas Mm -hmm. and everything like that. And so there is a grief of like having to let go of something and go, Oh, I was there. Tommy and I were having this conversation this morning about, is there a place to just have curiosity with humanity versus having to like pull this person in and you're inside this circle and pull this person and you're inside this circle. And instead, can we just see humanity where they're at? And I think in a relationship, especially an intimate relationship that can feel really threatening, but it can also be kind of erotic in some ways in the sense of, Oh, how can I not try and pull you into my circle? How can I be curious about where you're at? Will you offer curiosity to me too, where I'm at? And that can be the curiosity could actually be some of the bond that helps us in the midst of this. And maybe forfeiting the idea that what any of us has is the right answer. You know, so long as you're sort of both coming into the conversation of thinking like, I wish I could just get them to understand this thing that I feel enlightened about and rather view it as like, oh, that's how this person makes it through the world. Like they have this particular structure that gives them the sense of stability or that gives them a sense of wellness within themselves. And I have a different one. And that, you know, because then you you lose the need to convert each other or to debate or anything. It can just be a really genuine, like, that's an interesting thing about you. Tifa, I feel like this is a thing that you do really, really well, is that you're able to, as your experience with faith and religion and spirituality as it is sort of ever evolving. And I don't want to say you feel comfortable in that evolving in certain ways you do comfortable in the discomfort of like being stretched and changed and stuff. You also really hold space for people to still be where they are in a beautiful way. And like to never feel othered by you as though you have transcended where they, does that make sense? Like, I just think that's a, that's a space that you hold really well. I think part of it is that I've stopped believing this is going to be kind of funny to say it like this, that beliefs dictate people's character. So, I mean, Lucas and I, in our marriage and relationship, we've been together almost three years now. Both of our beliefs, quote unquote, about religion or spirituality have really shifted from when we first met in different ways. We're not exactly the same, but the quality and character of who Lucas is, is he's responsible, trustworthy, kind, honest. And that hasn't shifted at all, regardless of his perception of how he and God fit into the universe together. And part of the reason that I feel really strongly about that, and it feels like more easy and fluid for me to hold it, is because I have seen people who claim certain belief systems that you think would demonstrate like better behavior towards one another, and then that doesn't happen at all. And that can be so disruptive and so confusing Like when somebody says, you know, I believe in the teachings of Jesus per se, and I believe in the fruit of the spirit, which is kindness, gentleness, love, patience, self-control, generosity, all these things. But then you see them acting really hateful towards somebody different than them. It just makes me not really want to take them seriously when they talk about what they believe, quote unquote. But really, I think it's evolved into me being like, those are just beliefs, like beliefs change and shift. For some people, and for some people, they stay the same from when they're 10 or 12 or whenever they were taught what they believe, but it doesn't necessarily always connect for people and who they are. And so I guess I'm just more interested in the work of who are you versus like, what do you believe? You know, like, how do you care for yourself? How do you care for the people around you? That really shows me more, I think, what you actually believe Mm -hmm. versus what we say we believe. And sometimes you meet people and it really lines up and it's really refreshing and like super Mm -hmm. cool. And it feels really grounding when you meet those kinds of people because they seem to have that kind of like alignment of thought and action. And I think so many of us going back to last episode that are living disembodied because of the way we were taught to or instructed to, of course, those things aren't lining up. You know, we can't even be in our body to understand the contradiction. And that's happened to me in my own life too. So I think that's the other reason why I'm like, everyone's really trying to figure this out. It's really hard. I don't think that we're meant to compete with each other. Who's got the bigger truth. That's what I love about this quote is basically it's another meant, we're meant to compliment 
complete. That's what we're meant to do, not compete with one another. Well, I think it's like we've got to remove belief from the realm of identity, meaning so long as our beliefs in any way define who we are rather than being a thing. And this is something I feel like I'm only now learning. And I, I sort of hinted at this in the zero episode when I was saying like, I'm able to look inside now and say like, do I still believe that? Yeah, today I do. Today, I actually, like, it's just a matter of fact that that belief still exists within me Mm -hmm. and I get to move forward knowing that that's who I am. It has nothing to do with being like, I've got to be aligned with the right theology, with the right ideas because of all that that implies about who I am as a human being. It feels so much of like moving from the external to the internal awareness too, because I feel like with becoming a mom, like this has been happening for a long time, but I feel like now as we're starting to teach, okay, what do I believe about things? And it's like starting over from a foundational perspective of like everything. And one thing I didn't, this is something I wrote like for my Mother's Day post was like, I didn't expect having a child to cause me to relook at everything, not only like my body and my identity, but also like politics and religion and health and like every realm, every system I suddenly see with a different lens. But part of that question is like, does it align with the things that feel true to me now? Whereas before I just like, it was, what does everybody else say? And how do I align with that to make sure that that's like, I'm thinking back to my like twenties, like when I went to a Christian college, that's how you fit in was like making sure you're doing all the right actions versus shifting later of like, do those things feel authentic from coming from within me? Kind of like what you're mm-hmm. saying too. Like there's, so it's the, like the deeper, deeper work of going like, does this feel authentic to me? And reconnecting to that deeper intuition like it's that continual journey of like does this connect to something deeper versus like what have i been told to believe i think right now we're in danger a little bit of like five people with one view talking about yeah 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 so i want to bring in the perspective of the evangelical partner who hasn't deconstructed and whose partner has deconstructed and to say this is probably what that person is feeling right or wrong doesn't matter the foundation upon which our marriage was created is now changed changed, and that's threatening. That's scary. That's totally. really threatening. And so I just want to, I want to humanize that, normalize that. I'm not putting a judgment on that, good or bad. Just that's a really tough thing to sort of take in. Number two, within the evangelical, and that was the example that was given, is the belief that you know, if you're inside the system, you're safe. If you're outside of the system, you're not safe. You're not, maybe something will happen to you after death that, you know, and that's threatening. That's yes. scary. That's it's very scary. And then a third reality, if you have little kids together, the big question that comes up is how are we going to raise our kids? And are we on the same page? And if we're not, then what does that mean? And so I do want to bring in that because I've actually had the privilege to talk to several individuals and couples that are in this very dynamic. And the ones that I've talked to, one of them isn't an idiot and one of them isn't awesome. You know, they're both pretty awesome. They're both trying to make it work. They're sure. both or trying they're to both idiots in some <laughs> kind of way. Yeah. They're both actually trying to make it work and trying to understand each other and, and so does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, I want to I want to humanize the struggle. Yeah. I want to humanize the struggle. I think that's and really say good. it's hard actually. If you're in that situation it's very threatening, it's very hard, and there's no easy way through that. Well, and the other caveat I would say is that, like, we, I think we, not just we at this table, but we in especially sort of post-evangelical culture have gotten really used to thinking deconstruction means you no longer believe what you used to believe. <laughs> right, right. And I don't think that deconstruction necessarily implies destruction of belief. I think there are people, I mean, it's entirely possible that that person has deconstructed and realized, I still really believe these things. Right. Like, I actually do still stand mm-hmm. where I stood, but it's not because I haven't evaluated my belief system. Mm-hmm. It's not because I've been unwilling to ask questions or right. to, like, approach difficult new ideas. I just actually still believe this. I keep thinking about, like, the way that I grew up, belief, my belief system, my theology, were always a thing to cling to. As though Mm. the image that's in my head is like this pole that's cemented into the ground. And when the wind blows, I've got to hold on to it and try not to let go. Rather than thinking of myself as this kind of solid foundation. And I can sort of 
you know, the beliefs can sort of move with the wind through me. I, not mm-hmm. to say they're fleeting, but just to say that they are fluid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. We said the other day fluid would be a part of these conversations, but yeah, um, not in that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, so like the, the fluidity, I think, of belief is something that where when I was young was terrifying yeah. to me. It was a thing to like avoid at all costs. Yeah. And it has since become like, that's part of the beauty of the mystery to me is that like, mm-hmm. And the freedom to be able to wake up one day and be like, do I believe this? Yeah, today I do. Or some days it's no, I don't. Some days it's like, I'm just not there today. Yeah. And to recognize, you know, that's a river. You talked about the, the magic table being a river. So is, so is our belief system, exactly. I think. Like, I mean, I, I thinking about like the partner who's changed as well. Like I know as somebody who made a lot of changes after going through my divorce and even before my divorce, I always still felt like the same person inside. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think like it can be so hard to be vulnerable and say like I'm thinking differently now. Yeah. Right? About faith or spirituality or sexuality yeah. and like but I'm still me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I still hold the same values. Like I remember after I got divorced there was some discomfort when an opportunity for me to tour with some guys I like have partnered with for a long time. All of a sudden, it became a conversation because I was technically single. Like, is it okay for me to tour with these married guys? You know? And, like, I was super happy to talk through it. I'm so glad that we had the conversation if it's something that was coming up for them. But there was also a part of me that was like, I'm not interested in your husbands. Also, I care about you and I care about your relationship. And that didn't change just because my belief about marriage changed or my belief about God and sex might be a little different. Like just because I might be interested in having sex outside of marriage doesn't mean I'm interested in breaking up your marriage (laughs) with sex. (laughs) Um, And so like just to get specific, but like it could be about anything. And I think for somebody who is going through a process of expanding, evolving, changing, whatever words you want to use, like it can be really hard to feel so misunderstood as you're being vulnerable, like I'm still me, you know, like I just, some ideas are shifting. And in some ways in my journey, it was like, I feel more me now (laughs) than I felt before, because I'm not just like trying to fit into the center of the circle of what I was told is correct belief. I've never fit in the center of the circle that was described to me as what is like best and ideal when it came to hair texture and the color of my skin and the shape of my face. And like, the tone of my voice or how big my laugh was or like all the points I had to believe about religion and how I had to be married and how I had to have kids and like all the structures that were put in place of like, this is how you're a good woman of faith, you know? And it was really like amazing for me to realize I get to be my own center of a circle. Nice. Mm -hmm. And I can float around and that's okay. I've always been this, but now I'm just naming it. You know what I mean? And so I think it's like the remembering or the rediscovering sometimes for people. I just want to remind for, because I get it can be really scary when you think like we made this agreement and part of what we believed, especially in Christian covenantal quote unquote type discussions to marriage, it feels like the foundation. Like I remember saying like, how can you could never do this without Jesus being at the center? Or like, I remember like having those beliefs and like, Gosh, now I'm like, I could never do this without honesty and kindness and generosity at the center. Mm -hmm. That's more the conversation for me. Who knows what I'll say in 10 years? Yeah. I had a point in my marriage where I was going a different route in my own kind of deconstruction when I started really asking this question about sexuality and spirituality that had to be interwoven. And I remember my husband coming to me and just saying, I want my old Becky back. Mm. And I just had to, I looked at him and I said, She's gone, and you get to decide if you're going to love who I am now. Mm. And he turned and walked out. Wow. And I wondered and I thought, I mean, I just even get really emotional thinking about these two people and what they're bringing up and in all this. And it's like there's this element of we don't know how it's going to turn out. And, yes, it is so hard. It is real work. But some of the work that you do it actually helps expand for me. What I did is expanded my capacity to hold where, to see where he was. And suddenly, like you said, for me to stand into my own and be who I was and not be so um, needy to have his approval of who I was. Hmm. And 
we came up with this phrase where we say often, well, we're not on the same page, but at least we're in the same book. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes we're in the same chapter, but not always. And that was like a coming out moment for me where I was like, oh, I'm not going back, but I can stand here and try to love you, but will you try to love me too? Because mm. <laughs> I think it was for both of it was, it was very, something died in that moment. Yeah. And I didn't know how it would turn out. And it was hard. It was scary. It was very scary. Yeah. I think a journey together, partnering, marriage, whatever, of, for a long term, as we're all evolving, we're verbs, not nouns, seems to me that there will be quite a few deaths and quite a few rebirths yeah. and that there's no easy way to do that. You know? And what if we gave each other the freedom to have sovereignty over our own selves, you know, mm -hmm. meaning I am a person that is separate from you. Yes, we have a union and that's very special, but even within that union, I am a separate sovereign person with a will and a choice and beliefs. And so are you. And can we look at those instead of being trapped inside of some beliefs, can we look at those and just examine them for what they are, yeah. you know, and try to understand them and be on the same, in the same book, but not in the same page. And can we listen to each other? And I like what you did Latifah a few minutes ago about, I'm still me, yeah. you know, just like th that's a helpful reminder. You know, I would also say like, it's really important for people during those difficult times to explore this question. What do I need as a resource right now? Mm. Is it therapy? Is it some sort of, you know, conversation with someone else that isn't so quite so triggered as your partner is perhaps? Yeah. Because sometimes you, you're, it's okay if your partner just can't handle your questions right now. Yeah. That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the day. But you, you do need to be able to, you know, talk about that with someone. And I think as somebody who's an advocate for marriage, for partnership outside of marriage and for divorce when it's healthy and good, like... The thing that we don't, sh I feel like we shouldn't be dying to is that the marriage stays together at all costs, yeah. no matter Thank what. Yeah. That like, it's the care of the individual and the care of each other and the care of the family. If there's a family involved, that should be the thing at the, I think at the center over like, no matter what, or like what's happening, we have to like, just make this work. Like I just, that yeah. got me in a lot of trouble yeah. and it cost me a lot, that perspective and so I, I do feel particularly passionate about just reminding people like your health and safety as well as the health and safety of your partner or if you have kids is not worth like expensing Yes. just to have a concept or an idea stay together. Yes. And I think that like that has applied to my own self, my own inner person that like to hold an idea or a concept isn't the most important thing to me anymore. Am I caring for all the parts of myself? Mm-hmm. Like all the parts, the parts that were disembodied, the parts that are still here. And um, it's made me a much happier person. I still have grief and sorrow and bad days, but like I'm more at peace with myself instead of just continuing to ignore a part of myself or a part of my body that is making noise that I'm ignoring or overriding at the cost of, if I pay attention to this, it's going to like disintegrate this idea that I have to hold to be true. You know, you know, I, some of this I think comes from, and our history around the whole thing is, you know, and I'm going to use the Christian realm here is that the element of, and the two shall become one. Mm. And we tend to see that as like hands clasped together, interwoven, and it's like they're gripping on, hanging on to each other for everything they're worth to become one. And I remember when I was researching that and I was trying to figure out what that actually meant. And there was a, a woman rabbi that I read and I, I can't remember her name, but she talked about the two become one in that they suddenly have support in order to carry more than they could carry alone. Hmm. And I'm like, that's not what I was always taught. I was the two become one, like you cease to exist as you were talking before, Steve, about being this individual and having substance of yourself. I mean, you cease to exist. And I can't tell you how many people feel like, I think in many ways, the two become ones. I lose my identity and who we are is one 
not two individuals that could actually, by being together, we can carry more. Mm. And it's the roofing trusses that come together. And when they just overlap a little bit, they can actually carry more weight. That's cool. If they're totally collapsed in on each other, they can't. Mm. And so I think there's something, if we see the other person as someone who is to help us become more of who we are, that's great. But if they're suppressing our capacity to be who we are, mm. those are two totally different ways yeah. of viewing oneness. And there are moments when, can I become less so I can lift him up? But equally has to be, can he become less or they become less to lift this other up? And there's something about that that I think is, it's not a given just because you've said these vows. It's not a given and that's where I love the fact of saying, can I look at his character, the, their character? Can I look at character? I think the other thing I would add to that list of Latifah, you said you're, you know, as someone who's an advocate for marriage, for partnership outside of marriage and for divorce is separation. I think sometimes that like the two need to become two. I mean, yeah. I, my wife and I went through an 18 month separation and it saved our marriage. Mm. And so, and I've been in, you know, religious spaces where, that were the opposite. They were, they were like, no, you for un, under no circumstances, Is that okay? you know, should you ever separate, you've got to white knuckle it. And like, it's amazing. We did that for, we white knuckled it for 18 months and then finally separated thinking our marriage was over. And within a few weeks of us living on our own in places where we could actually do some healing on our own, do some thinking to feel alone, our marriage began healing. We continued, That's you know, true. to stay separated, but like we Im almost immediately after separating began being drawn back to one another and it completely saved our marriage. And so, I mean, I would be a loud advocate for that. I don't think it's always the answer. I don't think divorce is always the answer. I don't yeah. think staying married is always the answer, but, but I do think that like people should feel not so bound up by the ideas that have been presented. There are more options than what maybe have been given to us. It's nuanced. Like we have permission yeah. to actually address the human beings and the story that's evolving in real time. I think that's one of the reasons that like Jesus didn't give a lot of simple answers is like, because there's just so much nuance to each thing. Mm -hmm. And like, especially when we're younger, we like crave it. Just give it to me. Just give me the answer. Give me the thing to cling to and to live by. And like, it's just so one dimensional or even two dimensional. And like, there's so much more dimension to us as people and to our stories and to whether our lives can unfold. And it's, there's so much more to explore. That's so much more exciting when there's more dimension to discover. And like, I've been thinking a lot about my ideas about sex and like my ideas about what sex should be and what it was told to me. It should be how it should be pleasurable, how it should be experienced, how often it should be experienced. And like, now that I'm in a partnership that's so trusted and so safe, I feel so much freedom to be exactly who I am. And I can't speak for Lucas, but my hope is he feels the same. There is like a depth and breadth to the conversation around our intimacy that I've never had with a partner before, like any partner before. And it's just feeling so much easier, <laughs> less complicated. And like I, we can go with the flow as like our seasons change and evolve too. And there's like a dimension now to intimacy that I didn't understand before, you know, I'm so grateful for that. So yeah, I, that's a really good note, Luke. I just think each story, each person's nuanced. I keep coming back to this experience I had in my first marriage as we're talking about like the white knuckling piece of it all. And I can't remember if I shared this in season one, but as people know, like my first husband came out. And so part of that story was... We spent a couple spring trips, springtime trips to go to Texas to these conferences for couples who struggle with SSA, same-sex attraction. And so it was this room of some of these, the most beautiful, just brokenhearted, mm. aching souls mm. where they were white-knuckling mm. to stay in heterosexual marriages because marriage was the ultimate. And it was clear. Heterosexual marriage. Was heterosexual marriage. Yeah. So Yes. And so in most cases, it was men who had... Mixed orientation marriages, right? Yes. Yeah. But in the space, it was like called SSA. Like no one said they were gay. Right. Like that was not language that was used. And I just think for my ex-husband and I, I remember, maybe I shared this before, but the second year we went, we actually spoke and like shared our story like up yeah. on stage. 
And I remember looking around that room and just seeing so many dead souls, like these women, like men and women, like these eyes that were just like dying inside of these marriages because for the sake of the covenant, for the sake of the marriage, for the sake of that. And it was actually after that time that for us, it kind of unraveled where it was like, here we're being held up because like we're staying together. And what we, what really, what kind of like the thesis statement of our talk was about honesty. Like, and that was really true. Like we got to the point in our relationship where we're continuing being honest. We're checking in like, is this working for you or is it not? And then it got to the point where it was like, this isn't working anymore. And for us, I had a friend who said to me, Steve, what you said of like, your marriage is outside of the two of you that's being cared for, but you two are these two individuals. And it, that like blew my mind, like mm-hmm. at, in my mid twenties as I'm going through this of like, but we're holding so tight to this idea that to even think about letting that, like to live as two separate beings was like, it was a new thought because we hadn't, we didn't have the tresses that were holding each other up. We were so codependent. And so, which I feel like the church sets you up for that a lot in many ways too. And so for us, it became over, obviously over time very clear that the healthiest thing was to walk away. And it's so funny because I talk like, oh, my husband came out and he was gay. And it's like people assume it was an immediate, you know, a couple of days later you guys decided to be done. And it was like, no, we stayed together for three years to work through this and figure out like what that meant and what that looked like and fought tooth and nail to stay together. And then got to the point where just like we are suppressing so much. And I think about – I forget that that's sometimes I forget that's part of my story. And I think about yeah. like, gosh, if we would, where would we be today? Cause it's 10 years this year, actually, that I've been divorced. Wow. Like how unhealthy we would be. And I know some of these couples that are still together that talked about getting divorced and then like now have two kids together. These things like, cause they were trying to keep the facade. It's not a judgment. Like that's no, a choice they're making. Yes. But it yeah. breaks my heart because I know from deep intimate conversations with some of these couples, like, neither of them are truly living into their healthiest self. But because of where they live and cultural things and stuff, it's just there's, the freedom isn't there. And so I just think that exactly what you said of like, it's, it isn't cut and dry. And I, one other thing too is this conversation Esther Perel talks about of like, because now we live so much longer, mm-hmm. most people end up having three major relationships over the course of their life. It can end up being with three different people or with the same person, mm-hmm. you just change in those different seasons. Because she's been married to the same person, but she's like, I've had multiple different marriages between like being newly married kids later and all that. Like, I just think there's something so beautiful about that was super freeing to me as someone who was like, oh, I'm divorced and I'm like working this years ago, like working through that like damaged goods kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, oh, I'm just in the the next one, the next, you know, and who knows if there'll be more and how that plays out just as relationships can in life can end and who knows and so being open to that that it's not just one and done so it's really good it's really good you mentioned the people in those conferences who were white knuckling it for the sake of the marriage for the sake of the covenant which i think is always under the guise of for the sake of the glory of god and so we have this idea where because of some of the narratives in the bible because of interpretations of some of those narratives. It's not that we believe God can be glorified in our suffering. It's that we believe God can only be glorified in our suffering. And Mm. as though the only thing that God desires for God's people is that they suffer. And I just don't think that's it. I don't think that God's greatest desire for God's people is that they hurt. I think it's, I mean, I don't know what it is, but I'm far more compelled by the idea that God would desire enjoyment of the life that God's provided, you know, or created or whatever. That's a much more compelling idea to me than the, you know, the illustrations always used of God just being a mean kid with a magnifying glass and we're all little ants, you know. Well, God did create the clitoris. (laughs) <laughs> Back to that. That's what I was just about to say. <laughs> I thought yeah. clitoris yeah, was going to come the, out of your mouth. I mean, <laughs> that was the goal on the top of that, right? A lot God of does just have happen. pleasure in mind. A yeah. lot of things well, just it's happen. Amazing. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Like how just having those two sentences, like what you're talking about the suffering, and then you, to you say that, like there's still a disconnect in my brain of like, well, like, yes, but, you know, like to experience pleasure 
it still feels separate from God. Like there's, it takes a lot of inner work to allow that to be true. Like somehow that still feels like, oh, I'm supposed to keep that separate or hidden from God, that pleasure. You know, even though like I've been doing this work for so long, it's like, I don't know. It's, it takes a lot of work. Keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about how, as Lucas and I are preparing to go through the birthing process, how I've had so many stories of like childbirth is painful because Mm. of the fall, you know, because (laughs) Eve just made that foolish, greedy mistake of just needing that knowledge and needed to eat that apple. And it's our curse and it's the suffering we bear that like all childbirth is going to be painful. And I realized that like, that's a real story Mm. that I've carried for 40 years and haven't had to really think about because I would never pregnant before this time. And I just actually don't believe that's true. Like, it's um, not. It's even not the verb true. tense that's even used in that is actually yes. a causative. Yeah, it's not. It's so misrepresented. But it's like what was communicated to me, and yeah. like, it's just, oh, yeah. and it's a story that like we've mm-hmm. carried in like a white evangelical world. Like, there's a lot of cultures that like birth stories are passed down as really this positive, beautiful time that women get oh, to experience. Yeah. Like, it's not like that everywhere. But I've had to like undo some things that like it's not my duty to suffer tremendously in order to like have this life come. Not all good things come from suffering. Mm-hmm. There are good things that just come from good things. And there are there can be good things that come from suffering. Mm-hmm. Suffering can also just feel hard. Like it's more than that. And I just think that like I kind of had to like set God aside in order to experience some pleasure and then come back to reconnecting that God could also be the like one of the authors of pleasure, you know, as opposed to like, I need to hide it away because somehow pleasure is dirty, you know? I think one thing I've been thinking about with my daughter actually is like, so, you know, bath time, diaper changes or whatever, you know, like how important language is. And I think about how often, so, you know, she's getting to an age where she's like, she has her hands down there and I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to clean you up. And I want to be really mindful of say, like not saying, oh, this is dirty. Oh, yeah. I need to clean this up. And I was like, I never thought about how often do we say that as we're like in these private areas of our little, like getting them cleaned up and saying, oh, this is dirty. Don't touch this because, you know, there's stuff going on down there and you are trying to clean up. But because we'll, so my husband has been saying, like, we got to get you fresh. Like just these different like, <laughs> oh, like I love and it's like this That's playful cute. thing and like whatnot. And so just really being mindful of, how we start to associate certain things with certain parts of our body, even mm. at little ages, you know, yeah. and being like, and helping her, like even getting myself used to saying like, that's your vulva saying those things. And it's like, this is healing me too. And it's, I can catch myself going like, ah, and it's <laughs> not easy to do, even though like I'm in the midst of it. And so I know, and she's only 17 months old, so I'm not getting questions back yet. <laughs> But how will that be as it plays out? But She's I just saving think, him up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can see it. Yeah, yeah, you can see it. Yeah. So I'm just thinking of the fact of, you know, I've got three grandsons and one granddaughter and the relationship that little kids have with their genitals when they're exposed versus when they're hidden and a little bit and tucked away is very unique just to watch as a grandparent. But one of the things that I think is repeatedly amazing is children have a deep connection to their genital body region and they like you can watch a little kid fart and they just get delighted kind of like oh (laughs) or and i and even right now watching little boys around the table burping and at what age do we suddenly that's just disgusting you know it's like burping is a natural part of Mm. being human and I think that there's something about, you know, and genitals are just a natural part of being human. So how do we help them create a relationship? I think there's a really big element in what you're doing and helping your sweet little one, Ashley, create that relationship with you're also creating a relation. You're giving her language for the relationship that she's developing, but in the midst of it, and that's where I think this is so beautiful and brilliant and just lovely is it's helping heal you. So it has a long arm that reaches to the past and it also reaches to the future of what you hope for her. And it's like, that's kind of cool that genitals can do that, you know? Because I think it, there's a lot of wounding that has happened. And I can't remember who said this, but we are wounded in community. And the only way we're going to heal is in community. So it's risky. 
we talked in season three about I talked in season three about what was being revealed to me was how the church and the sort of religious spaces that I developed in really taught me shame. And I've been thinking as we've been recording this season, how much even outside of those religious spaces, culturally, the ways in which we celebrate shame, because I keep, I was thinking (laughs) after reading uh, beautiful wordsmith Rilke, I was thinking about another wordsmith, Garth Brooks and his song (laughs) Shameless earlier. And I was thinking about the idea that like, even in like movies, when someone does something that maybe I wouldn't do, you know, the response is always have you no shame as though shame is this value that we have culturally Mm. that prevents us from doing, you know, so the way that we would describe someone who would act in a way that we wouldn't is to say that they have no shame as though they should have that shame. And I I don't know, I just keep coming back Mm. to that idea that like, why is that? a value for us culturally. Like what's the thing that keeps us from doing bad things that's good, but like shame's not the motivator. Do you know what I'm saying? Like what's the thing that helps us? Like what word would that be? Yeah, I don't know. Have you no conscience? I don't know. Brene Brown talks about this in her book. I don't like the statement. I just want to say I don't like the statement. Have you no shame? Because we're placing judgment on someone else as to what is right or wrong. Yeah, I don't like it either. That's what I'm saying is that that like it feels like a thing like why would we expect that of someone? Why would we ask that of them? Like we're implying you should have shame around that. That should give you shame so that you don't do that again. You know what I mean? Yeah, the idea is that shame keeps us in check. And I'm like, well, what are – like it's it's good to like behave well towards someone. But like what's the motivator? Is a motivator shame or is it something else? What's the other motivation? Well, I think shame in some ways has become a motivator because it gives us belonging. Mm. I think everybody wants belonging, one, but I don't believe everybody's the same. And so why can't we celebrate difference in different, how different people do different things? I mean, I just remember one time as a small child, we had this missionary in our home and the meal came to the table and he just reached down and started eating with his hand. Mm. And I can't remember where he was from, but that was like, and I, I, I remember everybody looked to my dad and my dad just reached down and started eating with his hand then. Mm. And and so we as kids, we were so excited. I mean, I don't know what my <laughs> brother and sister did. I know what I did. I was like, we get to eat with our hands? I was so excited and got to eat with my hands. And I think sometimes belonging is at the root oftentimes of why we do certain things. But I felt like in that moment, we could have shamed him and said, well, here's a, there's a fork. I mean, he had no idea what a fork was for. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I just – or didn't want to. I don't know. But yeah. – it was like there was this moment we could all eat with forks. I, I just will never forget the look on my mom's face as she's eating with her hands. I think as I hear that story and what's the motivation, it's seeing to each other's wholeness, you know? Mm, and, oh, and when you realize, oh, oh, I intentionally or unintentionally did something that maybe harmed someone's wholeness or even my own wholeness, that would be motivation to not do that again or to apologize or to try to make a repair on that. And that's not shame. That's just seeing the effect of an action. Awareness. Awareness. And then choosing a different action next time. And, and the way I see your dad is like, you know, there's, he could have, there's a number of things he could have done in order to see to the wholeness of his friend. He, Mm -hmm. Just acted like, oh, yeah, we're all going to do this. What a brilliant move, you know? amazing. I mean, who thinks like that, you know? My dad would not have done that. (laughs) My dad ate with his hands because he was from from Yemen. That's what he did every night, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So the first time you used a fork, you were like, this is amazing. (laughs) We just had both at the table. We were a blended family. Blended family. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What are these things called tines? (laughs) But, you know, I think that is, there is something about that, too, that I think about even you saying you were a blended family, there were different cultures that come together. And how do we make space for different cultures? And how do we make space for different spiritual cultures and sexual cultures? And I, there's this element of just because I've always experienced it one way does not mean that it has to be that way. But here I want to say also when I will never forget my first friend who came out to me and I was 17 years old and I think I told this another season, but in his first statement, he's like, he came to me, he's like, Becky, Becky, I just have to tell you, I'm, you know, I'm gay. And my first thought was, and I turned to him and I said, Randy, can can we still be friends? Like, mm. I just like all of a sudden, 
oh, I, I don't know, can, will you be my friend? I mean, I didn't know what, and I was scared and I went home and I remember like, I couldn't tell my parents, like, how did I know so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, early mm-hmm. that I couldn't tell my parents? Yeah. And, you know, when I look back now and him coming over to our house, I'm sure it was pretty obvious. I mean, now I'm thinking back, it's probably obvious, but I just remember this thinking of, oh, he's different now. He wasn't yesterday and now he is. Can he be my, can I be his friend? I just didn't know what to do with that. But difference is something that is an opportunity to expand us or we're going to hunker down. And I just think that's common. We're, we're confused. And that was, what do we do with this? I mean, my experience of purity culture and Christianity has been uniformity and homogeneous uniformity is actually how we decide whether you're in or out ultimately that like you will conform to these behaviors or these practices of living, regardless of the diversity you might bring and the culture of who you are or who you're attracted to or the way you experience pleasure or what your desires are. It was like purity culture was this big, this is how you should experience desire and when you shouldn't experience desire. And this is exactly the map of how to get there and how it happens for you. And if you deviate at all, (laughs) Then like you're fucked, and that's where I had shame because I like I was like, what did I do? I deviated all the things on the map. Yeah, me too. The further I got off the map, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. (laughs) It was like fuck the map. Yeah, it was like literally, it was it was Lord of the Rings. It was the long way to Mordor. (laughs) Is purity culture, and I found my eagle, and I just got right there. (laughs) Wow, total nerd. No, but like you know what I'm saying. Like I think that's why purity culture is so hard is because it robs us of the diversity of the experience Mm -hmm. the like the depth and breadth of like who we are and how we experience it and like if i had stuck with the roadmap i was given in purity culture my life would look so different right now i I would not be married to the love of my life i would not be burying our child like things that i didn't expect that i'm so thrilled to get to experience now and my way of getting there was very off-roading. <laughs> I had to off-road. Yeah, spiritual off-roading. I like that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. So I'll you're saying vehicles. like, yeah, like so. I'm just trying to think like theologically, sexually. However, you know, to use the metaphor, you were given forks and knives and told this is how you do it, and sometimes you just need to do it missionary style. That's the way. <laughs> is that what? <laughs> Is that, that was a long setup to get to that joke. I've just been waiting to get to yeah. That's really good. <laughs> I know. Oh, that's really funny. And I also just want to say, like, to me, the goal wasn't, like, to be married again and to be having a child. It, the goal was peace with myself and not sacrificing my inner peace in order to present the idea of who I should be anymore. You know, because I used to feel like, oh, they took it from me. But the truth is, nobody can take that from you. I gave it to them, you know? And I realized one day that I was empowered to no longer have to give that away. And like we talked about an episode or two ago, like when did we decide it was okay for someone to tell us that our experiences with spirituality and sexuality were no longer valid based on whatever behavior we we were presenting at the time or belief? No one can take that from you. You get to still have your intimacy with the divine. Mm-hmm. You, you, you still get to experience your desire and like, I think I just realized that I no longer wanted to give that power away. Well, and that's the danger of the map. Like the whole map piece allows people to feel like they are farther along than you. You are closer to the beginning than they are. They are closer to the ending. Mm -hmm. And that's still such a one-dimensional way of thinking. Whereas, And maybe that map is completely somebody's beautiful journey. I just want to say that. Like maybe that map really paid off for somebody and like it was their way to desire and connection. So like I'm not unvalidating that one way. There's just so many other ways. But but it wasn't you know? the map that validated it. That's the point. Like yeah, that yeah. happened to be their experience, but it's not because it was on the map. Right. And I don't want to get lost in the metaphor, but it does feel, that just feels like one of those really limiting ideas that we were given of a roadmap. And it can feel so safe, which is going back to like when one partner starts to deviate it can feel really yeah. threatening too. Yeah. We talked about that last season of like, you know, I used the, the idea of, spending my whole life knowing that there were two stars in the sky yeah. and then learning, you know, and so we talked about folks who, when they were sort of blasted into space and, and forced to see other stars and how yeah, I wasn't asking for that journey. I wasn't looking for that. And 
it was just unveiled before me. That's terrifying for someone who's not looking for it. Can I read one more quote? Please. Yes. Okay. Is it Garth Brooks? No, it's not, but I do love Garth. I want somebody to sing that deep <laughs> voice of, I've got friends and no I really do love that. Okay. I think, and I'm quoting from this same book again, The Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. And one of the things is, what if our role is to rather than be people who are just on our knees, it's to be people who are midwifing new births in each moment of time. So our role as midwife is to bring forth what is deep within every human soul. That's beautiful. And that's where I go. That's going to involve difference. That's going to involve challenge. That's going to involve being in different pages at different times. But I also think it involves, can we be about seeing to the good of our brother mm. and not harming them? And it will be messy. And you don't know what's going to be birthed. No. Mm-hmm. Right. You're just there for the act Midwifing of birthing. is messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you do not know what is going to be birthed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Transforming process. Yeah. Hold on and let go. <laughs> Sorry. I just wanted to contribute Hang something. Hang on, lose me. <laughs> this episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now... Here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. I think it's important to note that on something as huge as Roe versus Wade and abortion, that it's okay to pick a side and be there. Pro-choice, pro-life, and be vocal about that. This is where I am. This is what I believe. Where nuance comes in is curiosity about learning the perspective of someone else. It's about naming what's really important to me and why. And being okay doing that. 